Good morning, Mark. How are you? Good morning, John. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Very good. I'm excited about this next series. If we can actually pull this off, it'll be awesome because it's a pretty ambitious goal. We want to walk through John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Very good. I see your copy is like super bookmarked. Yeah. Um, We won't, uh, without explaining the whole book, what has any impressions, Mark, from reading it? Uh, yeah, well, his concern for the human body in today's world. He does a lot in the introduction about uh, Kant and Enlightenment thinking, and we've sort of touched on this before in, in past episodes and seasons, but uh, the dualism of modern culture mm-hmm. and the disconnect between what we do with our body and how we think that he was very much in the line of St. Thomas and St. Augustine, that mm-hmm. people as a, a unified whole body, soul, spirit, mind, will, and emotions, and just how that important that is to be able to live life with any sort of integrity or health or wholeness. Yeah. Speaking of St. Augustine and uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the things that has blown me away reading Theology of the Body is the feeling that I am reading a true classic oh, in the tradition of the church. And I'm not alone in that feeling. George Weigel and his magisterial biography on John Paul II, Witness to Hope, which I highly recommend. Uh, it's like 900 pages. So you look at it and you're like, oh my goodness, this is tedious. No, John Paul II's life is actually that amazing that despite its size, it, it still reads like a novel. It's fantastic. Mm. When he gets to John Paul II's catechetical lectures, which have been titled since Theology of the Body. He says that they are a theological bomb Mm. set to go off sometime perhaps later in the 21st century. But here's, here's to put this in perspective. So when God raises up some brilliant and holy theologian to do something great, great works take time to really bear fruit. Um, They're not fats. Uh, Jesus constantly in his parable, he contrasts uh, fast growth that withers with the slow, stable growth that Mm. produces fruit. You think about the parable of the sower. Um, There's uh, weeds grow fast, but they produce nothing. Um, The sort of plants that you would want in your garden take time, but actually produce something that will give life. Think about St. Augustine writing the Confessions. Uh, People were not within 10, 15 years hailing it as great. Um, Truly great things, they actually grow in significance after the death of the author, um, after the first generation of its readership. And theology of the body does seem to be one of those things that people will be talking about hundreds of years from now, if not thousand years from now. I feel very confident that if Jesus has not come back by 83,000, people will be looking at theology of the body as one of the foundational texts. Well, like you said, if if it's such a bombshell, to to your point, you're exactly right. It it takes time to be absorbed 
into the culture to be in to describe to be absorbed into the, the discourse yeah people have to think about it they have to write about it they have to ponder this they have to discuss it uh, it reminds me of uh, i was listening to bishop Barron and he was doing a thing on second vatican council yeah and yeah you know, some people hate it some people love it and he says um in one sense it's kind of too early to tell you know what because his question was well is it a failure yeah. And he says, well, actually, maybe it's the wrong question. The question is, why haven't we embraced it? But it, I totally it, agree with him. Yes. It, it's it's similar to John Paul. It's only been 50 years. Yeah. Uh, not really a long time to truly get absorbed deeply into the, the discourse and the culture. Yeah, that's totally true. So back when I was an Anglican priest, um, I had the cure and care of souls. It struck me that everyone I knew, including myself, was incredibly affected by the sexual revolution. Um, now, there's a variety of ways we can be affected by the sexual revolution. But even if you react against the sexual revolution, that's still being affected by it. Yep. What that means is the sexual revolution, it was an actual revolution like the Copernican revolution. Mm -hmm. The way that we as men and women in the 21st century view our bodies romance, sex, babies, um, the stability and permanence of love, it will be changed for yeah. better or for worse by what happened in the 1960s. Um, and just going, it, it's not possible to go back in time. Now, the sexual revolution doesn't make Christianity obsolete. It doesn't make the virtue of chastity no longer attainable. It doesn't do any of those things. But it means that the way that we think about these questions we now have more questions right. that Augustine and Aquinas didn't have. So the church doesn't change its answers, but the church has to dig deeper and farther into its answers, asking the question, why? Well, and that's what theology is. It's it's answering the questions of your context. Mm -hmm. So you're right. Christianity is what it is. So there is a set of uh, beliefs and, and, and Jesus and the person of Jesus, but what that looks like in any given cultural context. So you're right. We have to do the hard work of listening to our culture, listening to our context, trying to discern what their questions even are. Uh, and this idea of it taking a whole, a long time, you know, what finally blew up in the 1960s, you could argue goes back to the enlightenment. Descartes, it does. Yeah. Kant. So, these ideas took hundreds of years to change our thinking, yeah. to change how we valued or saw the body, to really infuse in us this, this uh, dualism that finally leads to, we can do whatever we want with our body, we can define it whatever we want, and uh, you know, another issue, but a product of the sexual revolution and the thoughts of that were you know, the whole trans thing and yeah, all of that is 500 years, 400 years in the making. Yeah. Um, I'll say one thing before we kind of reintroduce the topic, but, uh, you know, many of our listeners, I guess, probably don't buy into a lot of the um, more woke or progressive narratives mm -hmm. on gender. So in case anyone is wondering, like, hey, my genitals do tell me who I am. <laughs> Why is all this thought necessary? 
Well, one of the basic reasons is we as Christians are called to be missionaries. Um, I want to go to heaven, but being a decent human being means I want other people to go there too. And people cannot run away from the God who made them and find the God that gave his life for them because that's the same God. So we can't run away from our created human identity and discover redemption. We only have to make peace with who we are as created beings to find redemption. That means that if I am a compassionate person and I want to love my neighbor that is really confused about their gender because of all these forces of thought and economics that we'll be talking about throughout this whole series, um, then I should take a look at Theology of the Body because that will give me um, a deeper understanding of where their confusion originates from. But even more importantly, I think the my general sense of Theology of the Body is Theology of the Body provides a deeper reverence for the human person made in God's image and likeness called by Jesus Christ and destined to participate in the glory of God. C.S. Lewis talks about how there are no mere mortals among us. When we see a human, we see someone that will will either uh, descend into such horror in hell that they would be unrecognizable or ascend into such glory that we would be tempted to worship them. It's a radical thought. But John Paul II, he helps us recover the eyes necessary to see the image of God and the story of redemption in the human person. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, we have to recover a purity of heart. We have to re- recover an innocence and wonder of heart in order to see the true meaning of the human person. Yeah, and life here on earth, That what to have a flourishing life. I think that's the other thing I really enjoyed about his work is... What does human flourishing look like? You have you have to have a proper definition of what a human being is, how we function, what is our goal, what is our end or our telos. But that's right. What is good? What is the good for human people? So you've got a culture out there that we live in that is giving all kinds of narratives and answers for what's going to make a, fl- a flourishing life. What's going to make yep. your life worth getting up for? How do you actually define what a human being is? So all of that, which. At the time he writes, the very definition of a human being isn't necessarily under assault. It is today. Yeah. So he's extremely relevant even today because the questions that he addresses, he defines, well, what is a human being? What is the good? What does flourishing mean? And how do you live out this human life in the best possible way? And that's such a great um, segue Mark, because we'll talk about the person of John Paul II here in this first episode, because his work is um, best understood through his own example, because John Paul II was a holy man and a man of deep integrity. His his life and his teaching both witnessed with great power and consistency to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He didn't leave, live an inconsistent or disintegrated life. But you talk about... Um, like to have human flourishing you have to know what a human being is what comes to mind is for me um john chapter 10 verse 10 jesus says the thief comes to still kill and destroy but i have come that you might have life and have it abundantly john paul ii grew up in the 20th century which is a century of ideology 
and war. And each one of those ideologies promised an abundant life. Um, Hitler's Third Reich and the Nazi uh, government promised an abundant life. The Soviet Union promised an abundant life. Secular, uh, consumeristic hedonism promises an abundant life. And John Paul II was not some armchair theologian up in an ivory tower thinking about these things in the abstract. He was a survivor of two violent military occupations of his native Poland and um, had a front row seat and was an actual an actor in the drama of all these ideologies that promised abundant life. And his question was just very simple. Does it? <laughs> and what kind of life does Christianity have to offer? Yeah. He's got a couple of really great early works from that period. So before he becomes uh, the Pope, when uh, he was still a, a priest and, a, and an author and a writer, and I've read his or some of his book, Person and Community, Selected Essays by Carl Votiva, which I would definitely recommend. But two of his most, wow. his most uh, prominent essays is in chapter 10 and chapter 11, where he talks about human personhood as mm-hmm. against individuality. Uh, and then chapter 11, where he talks about the dignity of human beings. So yeah. what he saw was what happens when you have these ideologies, what it does to the dignity of human beings. And so yeah. th- those underlying questions of what does it mean to be human, how do you establish human dignity, how do you let people live in dignity? Because as you said, he lived under two regimes that did not give the human person, not the individual, but the person, a subjective person with a, a will and a and choice and... Uh, deserving of love and dignity as a person, he lived under two regimes that completely obliterated that. Yep. Yeah. So let's look a little bit at the story of uh, Carol Wojtyla, uh, which is that's the the name that John Paul II was born with. By the way, I would have no idea how to pronounce the name Carol Wojtyla unless I had taught on John Paul II to Polish people <laughs> here in my Catholic parish. I come from the South, so yeah. I won't even give you the embarrassing ways I try to pronounce these names, but I'm a total Anglo. I'm learning a whole new world and new culture through the person and work of Carol Wojtyla. Um, Carol Wojtyla was born to um, two um, devout parents, father and mother, who uh, loved Christ, loved his church, and... Um, he grew up in a happy family situation. He had one older brother, Edmund. Uh, Carol's life was began in one of those few moments in modern history of Polish peace. Poland has been through so much as a nation. But he grew up during a time of stability. But it didn't last very long. Um, Carol's life was struck with tragedy early when his mother died. Um, I can't remember the precise age, but it was pretty early childhood. Uh, Carol had very little memory of his mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, that has an impact on him. Now, um, one of the strange things about John Paul II is strange in a good way. Um, he was so close to the Lord, and his life was so integrated that it's hard to see like 
like if I lost my mom, you'd probably see me like ways that like I was scarred and damaged by it. Those things don't really come out clearly in Carol, but you know that he felt the pain of it. Hmm. Uh, so Carol grows up as a boy. Uh, let me think real quickly how his peers thought him. Well, his teachers loved him. His students like him. George Weigel comments that as a biographer, usually you're sifting out two competing narratives on a person, people that loved and people that hated. He says you really don't find haters of Carol Wojtyla until the um, Soviet occupation of Poland realizes the threat he is. He was just a generally beloved man. Now, I don't think anyone expected him to be the Pope, but as a young boy, he was very um, respectful, outgoing, magnanimous young man, uh, liked sports, liked the theater. Theater was his true passion, Uh, but he was very involved in the life of the church. Throughout high school, he would go to daily mass before school early in the morning to serve as an altar boy. So he's a very pious young man, and and he learned this from his father. His father was a man of deep piety, deep purity too. And um, as Carol is a teenager, his older brother Edmund had become a doctor and was serving as a doctor during an epidemic of the scarlet fever in Poland. His brother chose to treat patients, putting himself at risk, and died of scarlet fever in the mm. process. So before Wojty was 20, he has lost his mother and his only brother, his only sibling. Uh, he saw his brother as a type of martyr. Um, and you can see later on when we get to Carol Wojtyla's ministry as a bishop and his role in the Second Vatican Council, how Edmund's example played a very big influence on him. And then, uh, finally, more tragedy. Um, In the midst of a promising uh, academic future, future in the theater, uh, the Nazis uh, take over Poland and punish and attempt to squelch Polish culture and Catholic religion in every way that they can. They made any embodiment of Polish culture illegal. So uh, Carol and other persons took um, Polish theater, literature, drama, underground. And this is really important. Uh, Carol believed that he was doing the work of God by preserving a people's culture. Later we'll see in his ministry of the Second Vatican Council and in writing Theology of the Body, he sees the Catholic faith as the one protector of a true humanism left on earth. God likes the fact that we are human. So by preserving the arts, by basically preserving things that remind man that he lives on more than bread alone, that he is a spiritual creature, that he loves stories, even if these things are not inherently religious, they keep a dimension of man alive that helps him remain open to God. And he's constantly stood up for the fact that to suppress a people's culture, to suppress the arts in a community, is inhumane. It's truly barbaric. Well, um, right before the Germans had taken over, he and his now aging father had fled, only to discover that not only had the Germans taken over more cities, but the Soviets were coming from the other direction. (laughs) So they start returning back to Krakow 
where he is from. In this process, his father dies. So, Carol uh, enters his collegiate stage of life, a total orphan. During this time, he discerns a call to the priesthood. At the time, Nazis were so anti-Catholic that if they were walking down the street and they noticed a young man wearing a cassock on Tuesday, which is the black robe a priest wears, that had not had a cassock on Monday, they would ask him who he was and what he was doing. If he replied that he was a priest and he was newly ordained, they would shoot him and leave his body in the street. As a reminder to the church that uh, the Nazis believed the church had no right to existence and no right to continue its ministry. So, Carol enters seminary at a time when he basically has to live in the Archbishop of Krakow's basement in order to survive. Uh, John Paul II is a fearless man. Well, he's Carol still. I've got to not be anachronistic. Carol was a fearless man. So here's an episode that kind of illustrates his um, attitude. He steps onto a train as a newly ordained priest, accompanying some nuns on their way out to the countryside. And they're afraid. Like, Carol, what do we call you? You're a man traveling with like 12 nuns. Isn't it obvious what you are? And I think I'm saying this right, this word right in Polish, but he's, call me Vuje, which means call me uncle. And it's, it, it shows his sense of humor and his, um, his bravery, but there's also something interesting in that because one of the, Carol enters the priesthood in the most violent assault on the priesthood in Polish history. But he knows that the assault on the priesthood is an assault on the Catholics in the pew. And an assault on the Catholics in the pew is just assault on humanity in general because people are created by God and have a right to know God. So he sees that humanity itself is under attack in Poland. And he believes that in order to be an adequate priest, he can't retreat into uh, the relative safety of the confessional or the, or the altar, which is, even that's not safe. He realizes that the people need something more. They need a radical priesthood of accompaniment. So Carol begins leading retreats for lay people all the time. He, uh, other priests joked about the fact that um, as much time as Carol spends in the confessional, uh, he spends as much time kayaking too. But he saw this not as a break from the priesthood, but an exercise of it. And he's honestly modeling himself after Jesus Christ himself, who we knew uh, someone asked to follow Jesus at one point, and Jesus famously replies, uh, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And Jesus is this itinerant director of souls with 12 men and whoever else gathers to him, uh, traveling throughout the countryside. This is how Carol conducts his life. I'll summarize very quickly now because it's a beautiful story, but I can't dwell on anything too long. So um, Carol is a young priest. He is made a bishop by very excellent leadership in the um, Polish church. Now, my chronology might be slightly off now because um, it's hard to keep in mind. His elevation through the ranks is so quick. It's hard to keep straight the sequence of events in which he becomes bishop, archbishop, and his involvement in the Second Vatican Council, because it's all overlapping. He's made a bishop, and 
during his role as a bishop and archbishop, he was highly influential in the Second Vatican Council. Since you brought up the Second Vatican Council, Mark, uh, I want to sh- just set something straight. The Second Vatican Council is coming under a lot of criticism in the Catholic Church. Uh, to put it bluntly, if you are a Catholic and you believe that a council of the church, an ecumenical council, is wrong, you are quite simply a Protestant, okay? <laughs> As Catholics, we believe in the magisterial authority of the church. Magisterial is the Latin word for teaching authority, okay? And that magisterial authority comes uh, through the papal office, but it comes primarily through the church's conciliar gathering of bishops. These are considered to have binding force. So if the Vatican, Second Vatican Council can be thrown out, why stop there? Why not the First Vatican Council? Why not the Council mm-hmm. of Trent? Why not the Council of Nicaea? Let's yeah. put the Trinity back on the table for a debate again. Simply put, the church gathers to have certain discussions. The Second Vatican Council, this is a slight oversimplification, but the Second Vatican Council was called in response to questions being posed by St. John Henry Newman back in the 19th century when he recognized that humanity was entering into a new era where the conditions of belief were becoming more difficult for humanity in general. We won't go to all the reasons. John Paul II gets called to the Second Vatican Council, called by Pope John XXIII, and um, he is largely responsible for a document called Gaudium et Spes, which means joy and hope. It's beautiful. Here's an example. It is only through a sincere gift of himself that man realizes who he is. It is only through a sincere gift of himself that man realizes who he is. This gets quoted in Theology of the Body. The quote actually comes from Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II. He put it into Gaudium et Spes. You can see how he has the example of Edmund, his brother, in his mind. Because Edmund would have been an example of Jesus Christ. That man or woman always fulfilled their vocation by giving their life in total love for another. So Gaudium et Spes and all the documents of the Second Vatican Council should not be read as some sort of naive, hippy-dippy optimism of the 1960s, but isn't the world a great place? Quite the contrary. In a world that is threatened with nuclear war, has survived two world wars, has seen more people killed in genocide than ever before in human history, the word genocide didn't exist until the 20th century, the church is saying if there's any hope for humanity left, it is in the Catholic Church becoming the guarantor of true humanism. So John Paul II is hugely influential in the Second Vatican Council. Ironically enough, during this time, he's made Archbishop of, uh, I think it's Krakow in Poland. And um, the reason he's made Archbishop <laughs> is because the Soviet Union kept up. Uh, so Poland is now occupied by Soviet Russia, not the uh, Nazis. World War II is over. The government kept on telling the leadership of the Polish church, we will not let you ordain any man, well, we will not let you elevate any man to the archbishop position except Cardinal Wojtyla. Which is hilarious. If he could take this one back, I'm sure he would. (laughs) Here is their logic. He's such an academic, he's completely out of touch with an ordinary person. See, Soviets didn't believe in truth. They believed in power. Like Karl Marx, like Nietzsche, who... Uh, their idea of government was derived from, they didn't believe in truth. They only believed in power. So they dismissed anyone who devoted their life to truth as just a hopeless head-in-the-clouds ideologue and impotent. They could not be more wrong. It's just his, and there's a series of uh, 
comic ironies like this in the life of John Paul II. He's made an archbishop. He's then elevated to cardinal. Uh, the church doesn't like to, as you can imagine, let out leaks from what is discussed in a papal conclave. A papal conclave is when the pope dies, the cardinals gather, or a pope retires like once in every 900 years, like Pope Benedict XVI. The cardinals gather in secrecy. They pray, they talk, they share notes, they discuss who needs to be the next pope, and they take a series of votes until a pope is selected. When Pope Paul VI died, uh, the papal conclave elected Pope John Paul I, who lived for a month. Okay, If Pope John Paul I had not been elected and then died so quickly, the cardinals would not have been willing to do something very radical. This is a radical thing they did. They chose a non-Italian for the first time in hundreds of of years. Now, the Pope of the church is the Bishop of Rome. So it kind of makes sense. If the Pope was the Bishop of Helena, then we would have had a whole lot of Montanian bishops. Um, because Peter um, in, completed his ministry in Rome, uh, the, the Episcopal seat of Rome is the chair of the Pope. They were willing to go to a non-Italian Pope they were also willing to go with a young pope. These two things made it possible to elect Cardinal Wojtyla, uh, Pope, who selected the name John Paul II, an honor for his predecessor. John Paul II inherited a little bit of a mess. And here's the mess he inherited. Pope Paul VI, who was the pope prior to uh, John Paul I, Pope Paul VI, Pope John Paul II had a very healthy friendship, a good relationship. During Pope Paul VI's pontificate, there's a big controversy about contraception. From the beginning of Christianity, and even back into our Judaic roots, Christians have seen contraception, rendering the conjugal act between a husband and wife as infertile as an objectively disordered and thereby evil action. That was actually held, a lot of people don't know this, that was held by all Christians, Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox, as late as until the 1920s. With the vulcanization of rubber and the creation of the pill, the contraceptive pill, Contraception just became a lot easier. And you mentioned earlier, Mark, things like the Enlightenment. Contraception doesn't come up in a vacuum. Uh, Roger, who wrote the Benedict Option, he points out that uh, the contraceptive mentality is the Industrial Revolution brought home to the human body. And, and we'll talk about this more in later episodes. But the Anglican Church, which I belong to, in 1920, says, effectively, this phrase will sound familiar, Contraception should be rare and safe and reserved for um, extreme circumstances. Okay, So the Church of England didn't like the idea of contraception, but they're like, they cracked the door open a little bit to it. Uh, fast forward to now, a Protestant couple, when they're getting married in a Protestant church, is typically asked, what sort of contraception are you going to use? Um, it's just treated as an assumption. So... Um, the Protestant world starts uh, kind of caving with the Anglican Church pretty quickly. Uh, 
by the time of the 60s, and where the sexual revolution has really uh, taken flight, contraception is seen <clears throat> not as a um, rare thing to be used for extreme circumstances, but just the normative behavior of marriage. And John Paul II saw how contraception increased in Soviet countries, both for economic reasons, but also because of um, the view of human love and life that was being propagated throughout the Soviet Union. Pope Paul VI releases a document called Humana Vitae, which means on human life, which he basically says, no, the church cannot change dogma, and this is a, a part of moral theology, which has existed from the dawn of Christianity. And he gives a little bit of an explanation for why, but it's a little bit more of just a sort of prophetic Jeremiah of a text that says no, and if this is not heeded, this is what society will become. People thought that Humanivite was um, overdramatic in its prediction of what would come. If anything, it's actually proved to be understated. It's actually gotten worse than what Pope Paul VI. And we'll talk a little bit when we get later in this series about what he said would happen. But the point is, is that this encyclical was greeted not with applause, but with rebellion from all ranks of the church. You had uh, married people just openly dissenting from this church teaching. You had priests and bishops resigning you had cardinals leak the pre-papal report where purportedly they leak it to the press that purportedly every single person except Paul VI thinks the church should have changed its teaching. So it just becomes this ugly war in the church. Mm. John Paul II assumes the papal chair right after this. Now, keep in mind, he comes with his own experience, his experience of family, of love, gift of self, um, he sees the Soviet attacks on family and marriage, and he decides that the world needs what he says, quote, an adequate anthropology, which means an adequate understanding of the human person. Pope John Paul II dedicates 133 Wednesday audiences to giving these teachings, which are now called Theology of the Body, and... Uh, through them, he walks through the words of Christ in the Gospels. It's basically a biblical reflection on the meaning of human life and love, and it sets out to answer two questions. Number one, what is a human being? And second, how do I find true happiness? Like you said earlier, Mark, we don't know how to find happiness unless we first know what we are, but we all want to be happy. So it's pretty basic stuff, although it goes very deep. Uh, yeah, to kind of more of the context that's a good story of his life that and so as he gets to the 1960s mm -hmm. uh, i think one of the reasons that vatican ii was so important is sometimes there's a misconception on it it's it was the church confronted with the modern world or modernity and saying okay how can we get caught up how can we modernize the church it wasn't the church thinking how they can modernize it was how do we reach a modern world? Yes. So as you've said, the world had changed so much with the 20th century. We had come up with <clears throat> new political ways to destroy ourselves with fascism and totalitarianism and communism. And then when you hit the 1960s, really the 20th century in terms of a 
uh, becoming secular humanists. I mean, that's when the, the 20th century, it, it just all blows up. So the church isn't trying to modernize itself. The church is trying to look at culture, finds itself in a very unique situation for the first yeah. time in history. So how do we speak to a culture, this particular modern culture? And so it's the question we posed at the very beginning. What is theology? Theology is answering your context questions. So it wasn't a question of how many Catholic doctrines can we update and modernize? Mm-hmm. It was what is actually happening in our culture and how do we take the historic faith and speak to it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so theology of the body comes at such an important time. Like I said, it's on the heels of it. It is partly a defense of humana vitae, or it, it's one of its main emphases. But the whole, the idea of the theology of the body, that God, theology, words about God, understanding about God, can actually come through the body. We yeah. know God through the human body, what the human body teaches us, what ethics teach us as people live a for the good, a flourishing life. When you do find happiness, uh, that blessedness, that happy life that Thomas would talk about, you know, happy not just while I'm feeling good for today, but that really deep, satisfying, in line with the will of God, this is a life worth living. It is pursuing and achieving the good. Yeah that all of that takes place in the body. So as he responds to Kantian dualism, uh, part of the sexual revolution, you know, as you point out, is, well, once you disconnect the body from ethics or the body from a, a holistic person, one manifestation of that is sexuality. You can begin to do anything you want. So modern sexuality coming out of the 1960s was you could have sex with anybody anytime for any reason. Yeah. Okay, well, that has to be countered. What? How does the church speak into that? Uh, yeah. And then, as we've talked about, the political moves of the 20th century, where you have more genocide. Like you said, that the word is invented because of the 20th century. We have more brutality and inhumane treatment of human beings. We're on the verge of nuclear annihilation mm-hmm. for decades. Well, all of this takes place in human bodies. It's the only way we, we can. You can't just have abstract philosophical concepts. Yeah. The church led by John Paul II, it's a theology of the body. How do we know God? How do we live out this good life? And it has to take place in the context of our human body because it's the only way we live. Yep. So yeah, it's not just about, well, a new theology, a new abstract concept. We're arguing about, you know, contraception or not. It's because all of these things have immediate impact on, as you've said several times, what does it actually mean to be human? Yeah. And what does a flourishing life look like? All of that has been upended in the 20th century. And we don't have answers to those questions. So mm-hmm. the church facing these modern questions that we've never really faced before has got to come up with some answers for the modern world that's right you know um two things in closing i agree so much with what you said mark about the second vatican council and i just want to add that like ultimately the second vatican council is a question of how the church can fulfill um a posture fulfill its its mission of of charity of love to the world it is not loving to so um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It is not loving for the church to so conform itself to the world that it no longer has any message. The world needs the gospel no less than at any point in history. And second, it's also not loving for the church to be like, oh, you're just confused. Y'all can go to hell. We have the answers. Aquinas still right. Yes, Aquinas is still right, but darn it. Uh, in a world that <laughs> thinks in def- different categories, can we at least explore the yeah. possibility of expressing the unchanging truths of Christian faith in culturally comprehensible terms? Yeah, because it's also not loving to let an individual or a culture go down this path of destruction. Yeah. If, if you see... You're, you're a loved one. They're heading, to you, but the way you're living yeah. will only bring destruction. Yeah. Well, it's not loving to say, well, you know, you be you. I can tolerate it. I'll embrace you. No, we speak to the situation and say, look, there's a better way to do this. There's a way that leads to life. And it's always been historic Christianity in whatever era we've been in. Obviously, that's the answer. Yeah, but yes, our modern context is a little bit different, and you've got the church, you know, standing in the middle of the road, yeah. waving their hands, begging people to listen. That you're on a road to destruction, and there's a different way to do this thing called being human. And for those who, uh, and this is a slight tangent, but it's worth saying, for people who look at what you and I are saying as allegedly the the purpose and the message of the Second Vatican Council. But then asking, we'll square that with me with what's happening at, I don't know, whatever in the church. I would reply, I'm sorry, I wish the church were perfect, but show me any phase in history where every bishop or priest clearly understood. And the the point is, you can't, okay? Jesus selected Judas. Now, that doesn't mean that we should ever be content with misunderstanding of doctrine or, or even a lack of faithfulness of some church leaders to church teaching. But it means that we can't take a problem we've always had and right. then from it to do some sort of novel um, ramification, such as the councils are wrong. You, right. you, it just history, you, if, well, if you want to be his, historically aware, you can't. And like it's only been 50 years, 60 years. So yeah. we're really only on the third generation. Yeah. The, the, the people who led that in the 1960s. Like, I'm at the tail end of that. I, yeah. I'm not exactly a child of that generation. I'm at the very end of that generation. So maybe you would have my kids and the generation after that. It's only three generations. Yeah. And to change the thought of a culture, you, you can't do it in one generation. That Absolutely. has to be absorbed by the generation that makes the changes or says whatever it is they say. That has to be absorbed and Im- implemented in the next generation, which begins to change and mold and, and shape. Yeah. And by the third generation, okay, maybe you'll it, it could really take off. But yep. to think that there would be some sort of instantaneous worldwide, uh, yeah, probably not going to happen. Things just take time. Yeah. Generational cultures take generations to change, I guess. That's right. And the final thing I want to close with is um, I applaud uh, George Weigel's title of his biography for John Paul II, Witness to Hope. Mm. Ultimately, theology of the body is a message of hope. (laughs) Um, Do we need um, catechesis? Do we need teaching now that maybe people didn't need prior on the meaning of human life? 
uh yeah we do yeah um yeah needs uh people need different messages to be the emphasis to be laid on a different syllable at different times of history (laughs) but um that doesn't mean that it's any less possible and in fact i think we should have faith in jesus christ that whatever challenges we face they're not insurmountable obstacles to salvation. We believe in a God who is providential in history. Whatever these really horrible, evil challenges are that we face, they are the arena that for some reason, God has chosen this generation to work out its salvation. In. Yeah. So we don't have to look at the world and think, oh my goodness, no, it's, it's not impossible. Should we, be, should we have grief, compassion in our bowels? Absolutely. But don't let that turn into fear. John Paul's message is, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Jesus is alive. Uh, look in to the teachings of the church. Look in um, to the good news yeah. of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, this is good news. Yeah. Amen. Uh, last thought, uh, Rod Dreher, his book, uh, Austin Muse wrote a book, kind of not really counter to that, but... Uh, where he says uh, there's no better time to be a vocal, vibrant, loving, active Christian, that what we're going through right now in our cultural context, he says people in the future are going to look back with envy that we got to fight this fight. This is not the time to hunker down. This is not the time to withdraw and just leave society to itself. It's a time to speak out say the historic things of the church, call our culture to uh, a, a better way, fight the fight, and in years from now, they'll look back and go, gosh, I wish I was a part of the 2000s. I wish I was a part of the, the, the fight the church fought in the, in the 2020. I agree. Well, you know, Mark, I'm looking at the time, and this is You're going to do a lot episode. of editing tonight, my friend. No, and here's <laughs> why. We bear witness to 900 pages of biography of one of the greatest saints of modern history and 500 words of catechesis. So there you go. With you all go. due respect to Pope John Paul II, the great, how could a short episode well said. suit him? Thank you, Mark. Thank you, John.